0: This is Newsfeed, a podcast about the intersection of politics, media, and technology. I'm Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Reverend Al Sharpton. Slightly intimidated to be joined by Reverend Al Sharpton, who is, among other things, like, he's on the radio all the time. This is something people may not know about him, but it's like, what do you, broadcast for two hours a day, right? Three.
1: I do a three-hour call-in show for 11 years now. Uh, It's on Sirius XM and about... 58 a.m. stations around the country. Do you feel like that's important to your relevance? I think it's important to our being able to mobilize. People people always ask me, how do y'all get thousands out so quickly? I'm on the radio every day, and I'm talking to a core constituency that I can say, we're going to Florida in two days uh, for Trayvon when nobody had heard about it, and we get thousands to show up. That's why I... They're more connected on the ground than most people know, because I'm talking every day, three hours a day, 15 hours a week on uh, the major black talk stations in the country.
0: I guess, you know, we were just talking in the elevator about the only thing that anybody can talk about these days. And I remember asking you this question probably like a year and a half ago, which is really how you see Donald Trump back then when it was just kind of a joke that he was going to be the nominee. But um you came up with him in the same media environment. You kind of fought battles with the same tabloids. You maybe came in with a couple fewer resources than he did to those battles. Yeah, just first. a few. But... Um, and and I guess I wonder just to start out if you could give me your thoughts on kind of how how you see that media shaping him, shaping you. What what what, what people who didn't who weren't battling the New York Post in the 1980s don't understand.
1: I think there's a couple of things, and 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 I'm. Uh... I'm flirting with an idea. I'm talking to some people right now about doing a book on Trump and race. You have to understand New York to understand Trump and and the racial dynamics which feeds into the media dynamic yeah. cuz I don't think people understand this. Donald Trump comes out of Queens. And only a New Yorker would understand. An outer borough person has a different psychology than an inner Manhattan, power circle kind of guy because Trump and his father before him felt they were fighting the real estate establishment, the guys that eat at the power breakfast spots and the power lunch spots, who never accepted them. And in that dynamic, he wanted to also be—he wanted to be a celebrity, uh, almost like a Gatsby type— So he dealt with the media, the tabloids mostly, not the Times or the Post, Daily News. He'd feed them, he'd leak them stories on himself, and he felt that he could gain a bigger status than the establishment guys that he felt rejected by, uh, by becoming a celebrity, and he did. And I think that they missed that part of the narrative with Donald Trump because people don't understand How could he, a billionaire, ritzy kind of guy, connect with these guys that are blue-collar workers in Pennsylvania and in North Carolina? He had the same chip on his shoulder. He just had it at a different level. He still is a Queens guy. That's where he is. So I remember, Ben, uh, about three weeks after the election, I was on uh, Morning Joe at MSNBC, and i said you have to be a new yorker to understand donald trump and uh you have to understand that this whole thing of the out of borough chip on the shoulder. i got off the uh show i went down uh, we had a national board meeting that morning national action network i'm in the meeting and my phone like self this cell phone goes in its last four numbers 2000 so i thought it was some reporter was trying to get me direct i said I pick up, I quietly say, "Uh, I'm in a board meeting, can't talk, I'll uh, leave a message on the voicemail or call me in three hours. Hung up. They call right back. So I'm saying, well, I wonder if a crisis happened. So I pick up the phone, I said, I said I'm in a board meeting. The lady said, would you hold on for the president-elect? I said, huh? (laughs) And I go outside the board meeting and Trump comes on. Al, I saw you this morning on Morning Joe. You understand me. I'm an outer borough guy. They don't get me. You an outer guy. You're from Brooklyn. I say, yeah, we were about ten million dollars different, though. Hey, whatever. And that's who he is. And I think that if you understand a guy that felt his entree to the society world was feeding Page Six, the gossip page in New York, was feeding the guys that go to the Grammys and that go this combination of almost a Gatsby kind of image without that is who Donald Trump was in New York. If you do that against the racial dynamics of he's in a borough where Howard Beach, which really started the whole and that's civil probably right a story, story,
0: a lot of our listeners don't How, know about,
1: don't know. Howard Beach was is a community in Queens, not far from where Trump comes from, where a black kid was killed in 1986. Uh, for being in the neighborhood. Car broke down. He and uh, uh, two friends walk over to a pizzeria, say, can we get some help? They said, why are you into in the neighborhood? Chased him. Uh, got killed. Family called me. This is the first case I became pretty much known on. And we led marches in Howard Beach. People came outside in the streets throwing bananas at us. You were, us and you water were attacked. Mines. Right. We were attacked. And uh, this is the borough that he comes from.
0: Now, just to go back, do you, is he right? Do you feel that, do you identify with that a little bit? That out, with uh, the, the kind of feeling that, you know, you're an outer borough guy looking in?
1: Well, I think I get it more than uh, out outer borough. I'm an outer borough black guy. Uh, so you've got the racial dynamics and you're not part of the, uh, the Manhattan elite. Culture. And real estate and finance, all of that's in Manhattan. The outer borough people, particularly when I was growing up, we were the ones that come to work for the people in Manhattan. And that psychology, I'm about 9 or 10 years younger than Trump, but that psychology was the same when I was growing up. And that psychology is something you fight against. If you had race on top of that with me, we were not even the Harlem uh, uh, elite. We were in Brooklyn, so I understand that, and I understand that that's what he genuinely tapped that outer guy, that rejected guy, and a lot of people that a lot of people can understand. How the hell does he connect with these guys? He's you know grew up a millionaire. He did, but he still had a chip on his shoulder.
0: And when you talk about the the race politics of New York in the eighties shaping his view on race, what do you mean?
1: Well. You had a very divided uh, uh, city. You had Ed Koch, who was the mayor, who played to I'm going to stop the poverty pimps, which was the poverty program. New York politics were all about race, maybe always are. It was always about race. And Trump was a Queens guy on that side. So fast forward, we get out of Howard Beach, Bensoners happens, same thing, community in Brooklyn ethnic community, black kid killed Yusef Hawkins for being in the neighborhood. We go out, lead the marches. I got stabbed. A guy ran through the crowd in front of police, stabbed me uh, in Bensonhurst. We get out of Bensonhurst almost around the same time uh, and Central Park happens. There are five kids arrested, accused of brutally beating and raping a white female in Central Park in uh, Manhattan. Most of the city's in an outrage, and uh, everybody's like, how could this happen? One of the grandmothers of the sixth kid, Briscoe, calls me and says, my grandson didn't do it, he was home, blah, blah. So I go out, and I defend them, ended up defending all of them, and, and uh, in the documentary was done. I led the marches for them. Trump took out full-page ads uh, calling them names and saying they should have uh, they should be executed. Now what was he doing? Why did he do that? I think that Trump was playing to the hysteria of the moment that he knew it would get him a lot of attention. And uh, I think it would help him with the law and order police crowd. Because you got to remember now, he's building. He's dealing with construction sites. I marched on him and the Plaza Hotel. He owned the Plaza Hotel at the time uh, on behalf of these kids. And uh, 13, 14 years later, DNA proved that these kids are going to jail wrongly. And Trump, the difference is Trump never said he was wrong. Even then, he said the city should not pay them a settlement. This is after DNA said they were the wrong kids. One kid did, uh, Kari Weiss did thirteen years in jail. Couldn't get a job. He's been in jail thirteen years. Worked for me at National Action Network for five years till he, uh, just about till he got the settlement. I had to give him a job. Trump had no settlement. And to this day, he says the police were right. That was the racial divide in New York. Now he would, in convenience, come across. Uh, he tried to be cool with some of the entertainers, you know, uh, Russell Simmons, Puffy, because he had the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City and he needed the acts to play his showroom. So he had Don King uh, talk to me. Oh, come on. He's not a bad guy. That was years ago and all that. And he because he didn't want me saying. So when when was that? This is late. uh this late 80s. So he into sent the Don 90s. King as kind of an emissary. Don and did King, you ever did you ever develop a relationship with him? No. You don't have nobody has a relationship with him. You talk to him. It's transactional. So he says uh uh he wanted Tyson to fight The King and him cut a deal. Tyson fights. I go to ringside say, hey Al, he acts like you never marched on him. he acts like you're best friends. And uh then two uh months later, he's in the New York Post calling you a con man. I mean that's that's who you know you're dealing with.
0: You you're also somebody who's always who doesn't have permanent enemies or maybe I don't know you who 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 deals with people of all sorts over the years in New York City. You could, you 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 you, you, you you get mad. You get mad at reporters. You still take their call in the middle of a board meeting. I mean, I I feel like that is a little bit part of the same culture that I that, think that you got to deal with. You got you know, you may hate the New York Post. You got to deal with the New York. No, Post, I, right?
1: I think that it is part of the culture. But I think that we approach it differently. Like I said He doesn't have to deal with race. He doesn't have to deal with poverty. I did. But it's the same culture. The difference is he does it because his goal is, you know, him having attention and it feeds his business. Because what does he sell? His name. He doesn't own most of this stuff. He sells his brand name. So what... Um.
0: I mean, he's somebody you've known forever, you've known of forever. The idea of him becoming president seemed, I think, crazy to everybody, particularly people who'd come up in New York where he'd really kind of turned into a joke. I remember when I was at the New York Observer, we weren't even allowed to quote him anymore because he was too overexposed. Peter Kaplan like, put, a, put an end to it. What, um, you know, that, that election night,
1: what was, your, what was your thought? You know, I, 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 in a million years, would have never believed that he was going to be president. Uh I had I did a live uh a hit, as we call it on MSNBC. And I was headed uh home and my girlfriend called me and she said, "You know this is going to be history first woman president. She, you know, she'd met Hillary a few times with me. She said I want to go to the Javits Center." So we went over and I'm in the back she says uh, at the VIP thing, she saw oh, the lines along for food. She says, "Don't you have an invitation to a viewing party?" And I went down to Harvey Weinstein's viewing party. He had uh, rented out Trapanese, and no, about fifty people was invited. Were Naomi Campbell, the whole uh, beautiful crowd. And when it started turning the other way, I couldn't believe it. So I, about midnight, I, I I decided to go home because I had to get up early. That must early have been
0: before. quite a scene in that I room. I couldn't
1: believe it. I mean, Paul McCartney, Naomi Campbell, uh, Harvey Weinstein, just us, 50 people and how the, up how, and down. How, how, was, how was the Howard room reacting? Be, they were like in shock. And I left about midnight. It hadn't been called. And I kept telling myself, riding up the West Side Highway, "Eh, we'll go to, I'm telling uh, uh, Asia, my girlfriend, I said, we'll wake up in the morning and turn around. It's just gonna be a lot tighter. I, in a million years, never believed when I got up five in the morning to go down to work out that they'd be saying Donald Trump won. And then, I'll be honest with you, I thought for a couple of days there was gonna be some fluke that would turn around. I mean, you have to grow up in New York seeing this guy at every scene, ringside, Grammy, all of that, for you to believe, what? Trump? Who doesn't know a policy position on anything, who has, who's not taken seriously in New York, is going to be the president? It, it was unbelievable. I, I used to say during the election, I might have even said it to you, that if Donald Trump had been black, he'd have been Don King. That's who he is, a self promoter salesman. But nobody, I know Don King 35 years. But I never imagined Don King to be president. Can you imagine? That's who you you've got sitting in the you, White if House. If
0: you had to pick, Don King or Donald Trump?
1: At least uh, uh, for Don, president, I think at least Don King knows the flag and could wave the flag well. And I think that uh, he probably could hold more coherent press conferences. I mean, this guy <laughs> contradicts himself.
0: The um, one something from that campaign, I because I remember talking to you about it during the campaign. You know, it's not Clinton didn't alienate black voters, she didn't... But also, she didn't, you know, turnout was down. You can talk about why that was. But there was one moment in the campaign that I remember really vividly, because our reporter Tracy Clayton asked Clinton about her role in the crime bill in the 90s. And I remember this, because she she brought you up.
1: I was interviewed by Al Sharpton the other day, and I've known him a long time, because I represented New York. And he said, and I think it's good to be reminded of this, that in the 90s, and particularly when my husband became president, there was a great demand, not just from America writ large, but from the black community to get tougher on crime. And Al Sharpton said this. He said, I was one of those people who was asking that we get tougher on crime and that we clean up our neighborhoods and we stop gangs from killing each other. And he said, I was you know, going around boarding up crack houses. And he said, so we can't go back and say that, we didn't ask that a lot of this be done because we did.
0: I mean, it sounded to me like she was, in some ways, blaming you
1: for yeah, the I, crime and, bill, and that's a missed uh, perception. We were saying something should be done. I was painting red X's, exposing crack houses, and we were saying some of the police were involved in it. What she did not end saying, and I said in the same interview with her, is that. When they came with the omnibus crime bill, we said, no, that's too far. You're going to have unintended consequences here because what our main objection was is how are you going to have mandatory time for a kid selling crack and not mandatory time for the guy with loose cocaine? There was no mandatory time for loose cocaine. You can't have crack without the loose cocaine. So we felt it was discriminatory. I marched on Bill Clinton about that. And uh, uh, the 94 hour of his crime bill. And A lot of the Congressional Black Caucus was with Bill Clinton against us. We fought him on the crime bill. So she's right about the appeal, and I said that in the interview. Yeah, we wanted something done. We were never pro—it's always amazing to me when people act like we we never dealt with black-on-black crime, as they call it, or we never were with the police. No, we wanted policing, but we didn't want to have people doing 30 years in jail— which is what that crime bill did. So that's where I uh, was uh, split with uh, Mrs. Clinton on. And as you, uh, Ben Smith, uh, came uh, when I had about 450 ministers at the National Action Network lunching at the Democratic Convention, uh, young and old. I had Mary Pat Hector, who was at that time 18, our national youth director, and all of the youth directors of traditional organizations. That was our problem. Her mistake was she did not mobilize in the black community. Let me tell you why. You were there. We had one of the biggest gatherings of black ministers and all at the convention in Philadelphia, right? They're all there. Mark Morial's there from the Urban League. The head of the NAACP's there. How do you not have Mrs. Clinton come by? And you asked her. We invited her. How do you not come by? These are the people that get your vote out. That's your base. You lost Michigan by, what, 15,000, 20,000 votes? You could have got that if you mobilized two housing projects or three churches. Never touched them. So in many ways, I think that the whole question of, oh, we've got to reach out to the Appalachians and to the blue-collar workers and stop the identity politics, well, that's one strategy. But what I'm saying is you never worked your own base You took your base for granted. So it's not that you need to go another way. You didn't identify with those in identity politics. And that's why you had the lowest turnout you had around blacks in a long time. She would call me. She came to my convention. But they never uh, engaged us in the campaign. And how do you decide that those that were part of what helped President Obama all of a sudden, you're going to flip the script, bring back your friends from the 90s whose Rolodex is outdated. And I think that's where they did the wrong math in the Clinton campaign. They assumed that we'll go get all of this because everybody will stay here. Young voters, black voters, Latino voters like Obama. And it didn't happen. Let's take a quick
0: break. We'll be right back. I saw you tweeted and got maybe slightly beat up on Twitter about, um, about Roger Ailes. You said he'd been a. uh, You didn't agree on much, and you protested him at times, but um, but his impact on U.S. culture was undeniable. He's a study. I wonder what you meant by that.
1: I mean that if you really want to understand how this culture became so divided, Roger Ailes gave a media voice to the Archie bunkers of this country, and that needs to be studied. As much as I disagreed with him. If somebody was able to penetrate, you need to know why. And uh, you know, those that did not agree, I mean Rachel Maddow said she considered him a friend. And certainly she didn't agree with him. Did you know him well? Did you know him through the years? I, I met him. Uh Geraldo, uh, who was was very supportive of me on something. Would uh, uh had me come to his house once and Roger was there and that's the first time we talked that might have been twenty five years ago, and every once in a while before MSNBC, I would go do O'Reilly show to debate him or Hannity and I'd see Roger Ellison. and we talk and the funniest thing was uh he would always tell me you know and he showed me a picture he took with Malcolm X uh back in the day as a reporter. And I used to tease him. I said, so you're going to show me the Malcolm X picture? Why don't you show me the Nixon picture? <laughs> I said, I think you might have interviewed Malcolm. You worked uh, and helped create Nixon. But you get to know people in this business. Doesn't mean that uh, y'all are allies. Because Fox News probably attacks me more than anybody in the last since their inception. But again, you don't take it personal. I learned as a kid. You know my story, Ben. I've been in this since thirteen. I learned as a kid that activism is like football. Half the crowd in the stands is gonna cheer you; the other half is gonna jeer you. You don't get intoxicated by the cheers, and you don't get intimidated by the jeers. Your job is to get the ball across the goal line.
0: It seems like uh, the president of the United States does not see things quite like that. He seems to. It's, he seems to. Take this stuff pretty personally
1: he takes it personally and I think part of it is he doesn't have a goal line he's trying to do I gauge by did we win certain legislation did we in New York do stop and first down won that did we preserve voting rights and get the Justice Department under Obama to move did that did we start moving toward police reform did that. I'm I've got goals he has no goal he's the goal so therefore everything is personal. I don't mind getting the crap beat out of me if I can turn around and say to Abner but those cops went to jail 40 years. And we did. So if your only goal is you, yeah, we all have ego. Yeah, we like the, uh the spreads in vanity fair, but that's not the goal. That's a means to an end. To him, that is the end. So if you're attacking him, you're attacking his goal. With me, it's part of doing business. So with Ben Smith zings me on BuzzFeed or praises me. I gauge it on, is that going to help us get what we're trying to do now against Sessions? That's how I gauge it, because at some point you get old enough and mature enough to understand why you're out here. I think that the president was out there to win for Donald Trump, and now that Donald Trump has won the ultimate prize, he has no idea what he's going to do with it and why, which is why every day it's a policy change. I think he watches TV all day and everybody stays around him because they know that he'll change his mind. And that's scary to me for this country. It's scary. It's frightening.
0: Just to ask you a last question, we were talking about this before, but can you tell me a little about your media diet?
1: My media diet, I'm a 5 I don't want to a- ask
0: about your actual diet because it's too depressing for me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a 5 a.m. riser. Uh, 5.15, I'm in the gym in my building, and 5.35, I'm on the internet, 5.35, 5.40. It's going how long I work out. I don't try to kill myself. And I go and first I'll Google up what's on the Central News and check it with Yahoo. Then I go to Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, Real Clear Politics. Uh, then I will go to Politico, Daily Beast. Then I will go to The Root, The Grio News uh, One, Bossip, and Media Matters. they would probably be surprised I watch all of that because I got to know what the millennials are doing. I got to know what old folks are doing. So if I just go to political, don't read BuzzFeed, I don't know what the younger people I read it all. And the real magic to what I do is I go outside and get in the car and act like I have no idea what all you guys said about me. Because I don't really care.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much. On that note, thank you for coming on. That's a good way to close. (laughs) Newsfeed is produced by Meg Kramer, Eleanor Kagan, and Daryl Levy.